Let me clear a few pieces of paper here. So some of you have uh, been here. We've studied in the recent years in this class setting. We've studied about God the Father, and we just finished a study about God the Son, and now we're, of course, finished uh, beginning a study of God the Holy Spirit. So those are the, obviously the three members of the Godhead. Uh, each of those three persons of Godhead, as we, as we approach them, I think they each sort of give us a unique little problem that we have to deal with as we move into that. Uh, if you remember uh, when we did God the Father, um, the whole idea that we have so many references to God in the Scripture, we see the word God over and over and over again. We see the word Lord over and over again. And sometimes I think when we use the word God, we're not thinking about a person. We're thinking about more as some kind of a general force. I, for lack of a better term, I think we sort of start putting God in a generic term, terminology. It's, it's God, but it's not a personal God for us any longer. Uh, I wouldn't even want to begin to try to figure out from context when the scripture, when it says God is sometimes referring to the God the Trinity, sometimes it is referring to God the Father, uh, but when we come to that matter, I, I've off, I think that the personal relationship with God the Father is often neglected and overlooked. We may have, may have a personal relationship with what we're thinking about as God, but is that a personal relation, relationship with God the Father? We're specifically focusing on God the Father. And the only thing I can say to you is if you think about sitting around your dinner table and you, you know, you're really wanting to talk to your wife and you start talking in generic terms, she's not going to appreciate it, okay? She wants you to talk to her, not just to the wall or whatever other thing is in the, in the room. So you need to talk to, to God the Father in a personal sense. You need to isolate that concept that God the Father is a very specific person of the Godhead uh, the first person that God had, and, and keep that in mind. So that's, I think, the struggle that people have with God the Father is just making sure that we personalize him as a person and not just lose him in, in, in the overall picture of who God is. Of course, last time we uh, just talked about Jesus Christ, the Son, obviously the biggest thing involved with that is the fact that we need to make sure that we can demonstrate and that we are convinced that he is 100% God. Uh, we have pictures of him in different places. We see him as, as a human. Uh, so it's not so much. Early on in church history, there was some issues with whether he was really, really human or not. I think most of those issues were probably resolved earlier on. But still the question is continually raised, raised by the cults that are around us, uh, raised just by uh, general approach to whether or not Jesus Christ is 100% God. And that I hope we left those of you that participated with us last quarter a little bit firmer foundation on that, a firmer grip on the fact that he is, in fact, 100% God. So that, that is what we're dealing with when we're dealing with Jesus Christ, is just to make sure that he is God. And then, of course, to try <laughs> to comprehend the whole concept of that he's the God-man, that, that he is Christ, and that he is God incarnate. That is, that is a different level, you know, from that he's, that he's God. That's a different level of just trying to understand how something like that could have taken place in, in God's will and God's plan. As we move into the matter of the Holy Spirit, the, I think the primary issue with that is, again, to give him personality, to give him a personhood. Um, there is a tendency to think of the Holy Spirit more in the sense of his activities of what he, what he has done or what some people are claiming that he's doing today, which we don't believe is true. 
but to go beyond the, the sense of the concept that he's just a force or a power or some kind of special presence, maybe some kind of, you know, reaching, you know, somehow God, the Godhead just sort of spreads itself out and we, we are touched by the spirit. We're touched by, by that fact that, that we describe him as being, as being spirit. And so that is the first, first thing we're going to work with uh, in our class is the fact that, that we can demonstrate from the, from the word of God that he is, in fact, a person. Um, so that, that is where we're, we're uh, headed this morning, and again, just to sort of overview and also move ahead. Uh, if you look up definition, try to locate what is involved in uh, being a person, the three things that are essentially uh, required to be recognized as a person is the ability to think or reason, draw a conclusion, which is intellect. The other is to, to have and express uh, feelings, to have attachments, to have devotion to someone, which is, which is emotion. And the third thing that is expected of someone to be a person is to have the ability to make decisions, to use that intellect and emotion in the involvement of making a decision and, or the ability to have volition or, 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 or a will. So we're going to just look at some scripture verses that will indicate that he indeed has uh, intellect, emotion, and will. The, the Holy Spirit does have, in fact, intellect, emotion, and will. The first scripture I have you turn to is um, 1 Corinthians. I, it, I have written it down in my paper, so I don't know what it says in your notes. But it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The ability to, to, uh, to reason, to think, to come to conclusions, this intellect ability to have intellect. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and beginning with verse 10, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what, for what man knows the things of a man, for what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him, even so one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. And so we have here this whole concept of something that's been revealed, something that's observed and discovered. We see the word know in that particular passage. So it is a, is a passage that indicates that the Holy Spirit um, here has, has intellect, has this ability to reason or to think. And then over to Ephesians uh, chapter 1, just a little bit different way of referring to this, but Ephesians chapter 1 And verse 17, um, and it talks about here, the association is, is the, the wisdom and the knowledge and the revelation that's in this verse, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? Um, and I'm sorry, but I sort of got need to pick back up and see back in verse 13 where it talks about having been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so this passage from that verse on, verse 13, is basically alluding to this matter of what the Holy Spirit does for us. And then back to the Old Testament, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 11. 
Isaiah chapter 11, and I'll read verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirits of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So this obviously is a reference to both Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to Christ during his earthly ministry, and the descriptive terms here of the Spirit of the Lord are, are just really, really um, expansive. There's a lot of thought and potential move, room to expand and move on. But wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and then putting all that stuff into a practical a- application of the fear of the Lord, coming to a deeper respect for the Lord, a deeper, deeper reverence for the Lord as a result of what the Holy Spirit is doing through us in this area of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And so the Holy Spirit is seen as, in some specific verses, as having this ability to to have emotion or, excuse me, to have intellect or the ability to think. We see, uh, talk about the Holy Spirit having emotion. Maybe, I don't don't know how, sometimes I don't know what you're looking at, what I'm looking at, because my notes have probably got a few more things than your notes might have. But, and maybe I've already given away the answers, but when you think about the Holy Spirit, how do you come to any conclusions at all that he might have emotion, that he might have feelings, that you might be able to do something to him that would, in quote, hurt his feelings? Anybody? Just, they're pretty simple, popular uh, concepts. Robin? Grieving the Holy Spirit? Yep. Anyone else? John? Doing things that cause shame. Doing things that we call for repentance and being unrepentant. Okay. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 gives us one of these verses that indicates the emotion of the Holy Spirit, and it goes with what Robin has said, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so there, there is the potential of us grieving the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, we've all someplace along the way grieved our parents, Okay. Uh, if we have children, they have some, at some point in their time grieved us. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that we're alienated. It doesn't mean that we're going two different directions. It just means that at that particular point, the way I've felt about something has been, has been touched, has been rubbed raw. I've encountered something that wasn't there. So over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, another reference. Um, by the way, Paul is... Uh, one of the most frequent uses, the references to the Holy Spirit uh, along the way. And 1 Thessalonians 5.19 simply tells us not to, um, not to quench the Spirit. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. 
Um, again, there is obviously a great deal of, of um, power available to us as believers from the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life, not necessarily, not, not intended to do signs or, or gifts or something like that, but just in order to us, for us to live uh, the Christian life, in order for us, for the Holy Spirit to give us the fruit of the Spirit, for the Holy Spirit to do those things in our lives that we cannot do in ourselves. But there is, you know, it's interesting sometimes when, Paul, when Paul's finishing up a letter, he writes something and it's like, wow, Paul. Now, what do you expect us to do with that? Quench, do not quench the spirit, you know? What about some information? What about some explanation, okay? Um, so Paul expected us, and the Holy Spirit expected us to use our brains and to use, uh, you know, what knowledge we can gather and what in- input we can put together, uh, but we're not, to, we're not to limit, we're not to put some kind of a, a wet blanket on the ability of the Holy Spirit to work through our lives to bring honor and glory to God. And so we're not, we're not wanting to quench the Holy Spirit. The next reference I give to you is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is in reference to the distribution of spiritual gifts. Um, those spiritual gifts are associated with the Holy Spirit. In reference to us as a believer, in reference to the overall body of Christ. And so here in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And probably just sort of gets lost sometimes because it's the end of a verse. They're not big words, they're not major words, they're not uh, tongue twisting words. But as he wills is, you know, as he, just, as he makes a decision to distribute, this, this saying that the Holy Spirit is giving to each individually whatever gifts the Holy Spirit in the sovereignty of God and the overall plan of God and how God can have all those details involved. Obviously, stretch your brain this morning. But he gives to each one of us the, the gifts that we're going to need through our lifetime as a believer to serve Christ, to serve the church, and to serve other believers. And he does that according to his will. It's not something we determine. It's not something we seek out. It's not something we do. Uh, On toward the end of the class, if you notice in the outlines, we will get to the matter of the gifts of the Spirit, uh, both those temporary gifts and those current serving gifts today. So involved here is this whole matter of the uh, giving uh, the Holy Spirit, being a person, demonstrating the ability to think, the ability to have emotion and the ability to have will or make make decisions. Um, I, I want you to feel free to ask a question in the course of a class. If you if I've said something that's raised a question in your mind, uh, sometimes I will not be able to stop immediately when you get raise your hand. But if you persist, I will get to you. Sometimes I have to finish my train of thought to do whatever. Um, there, are good, there are times in my class that I will ask you for contributions, ask you for, for discussion. Uh, other times I'm going, not to, I'm going to limit your contribution and your discussion just because I have a certain amount of uh, stuff to cover. And sometimes your, dis, dis, your contribution or discussion doesn't, isn't really germane to what we're talking about. 
So sort of a hard balance to hold up here, but you've got to keep the class going. I have a certain amount of stuff I need to cover, and so I'm willing, more than willing to answer your questions, but I'm not always going to be willing to accept your contributions if it's going to take time away from the class. I have prepared. I have studied. And so contributions are not always going to be where they need to be. So looking at some of the activities of the Holy Spirit, we can see uh, some, we can ask ourselves, is that just something just, just the force can do? Is it just something that's the result of a presence? Or is this something that demonstrates that behind what's happening, there has to be personal intelligence, personal feelings, personal decisions being made? So um, I need some people quickly to look up some verses for me, uh, get, get you involved here a little bit. I uh, need someone to read Genesis 1-2. David, um, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. John, John 16, 13. Mike, um, Isaiah 48, 16. Beverly, um, Genesis, John 14, 26. Brenda, and John 16, 8. Laura, okay, we'll stop there. I've got a couple more verses written down, but, I've got, but we'll stop there. So these, are, these, again, are activities that are in the Scripture that I think take us beyond just some kind of a power, just some kind of a force, but take us to, I raise the question, how can just a power force be doing this? So, uh, David, read Genesis 1-2 to begin with, please. Okay. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Uh, this will be come back up again when, when we get to the um, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We'll look at this passage again. Uh, it, it is identified in this passage as the Spirit of God. It's not just the Spirit. Most of you probably are aware that the word we get both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, both the words that are used are just basic words that refer to, to wind, to breath, to the, to the movement of air. But they then, that word is then specifically used to refer to the Holy Spirit. And so in this particular case, we're not left with question about what spirit is being talked about. But it is very specifically identified as the Spirit of God. John Zechariah 4, 6, please. Okay, so God's, God has might, he has power, uh, he spoke the world into existence, but he also very carefully indicates in this particular passage that he's going to also minister directly to us, not just through his activities, but through the person of the Holy Spirit. And now I'm going to have to be honest with you, I, I don't know who else took what, what verses, but it's John 16, 13, Mike I think, right? Okay, and just to mention this, that John chapter 14 through 16, if you want to be reading the scripture passage, it will continue to give you insight and information into the Holy Spirit. Uh, during this class specifically, I guess, I would encourage you to read John 14 through 16. Um, it, it is just the, pa we will be in there, it's just the passage that continues to bring 
to us that personal ministry of the Holy Spirit in our, in our everyday lives. So I would just encourage you to be uh, familiar with that passage as you can be. And then Isaiah 48, 16. Okay, and John fourteen twenty six. Brenda? But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay, and I think finally the last verse we've handed out with John sixteen eighteen. Laura? And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay. And then I need, everybody get your hand ready again. I need somebody to read Genesis 6-3. Wayne. And somebody to read Isaiah 59-19. John. Um, Nathan, you want to read Acts 8-29 for me since you had your hand up? And finally, Acts 13-2. Monty. Okay. When you get Genesis 6-3, if you'd read it, please. Okay, so the spirit striving with man, again, it, to me, it's pretty indication that you have a person involved in that activity, in that ministry. And Isaiah 59, 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Okay. Some of you may have in that verse, instead of the Spirit of the Lord, you may have a verse, just a reference to wind or breath or something like that. It's a matter of interpretation of the context. I personally prefer the, the, the word spirit to be used in that particular verse. Just, just, just for my ex, word, way of explanation, if any of you have something other than spirit, uh, I think it's a preferred reference. And Acts 8.29, uh, Nathan. Okay. Oh, boy, I didn't get the right. Uh, told you verse 9 is really verse 29, I think. No, oh, okay, I've written the wrong verse down then. Sorry. Uh, finally, we'll just do X 13.2. Okay. So... These are just some places in the scripture that we could pull. I mean, there's multiple other ones that we show that his activities are indicative of some type of personal activity, not just a power and not just a force. Um, the next section is on your notes, and it will help if you, um, I know we'll get a little bit off base, but just, just to cover it, just to be sure that you understand uh, that, that it's here. Um, English can be a very complex language, but in some ways it's not quite as complex as other languages. Um, the Greek language, uh, every, every noun is placed into one of three genders. It's either in masculine form, feminine form, or neuter in form. Okay? Sometimes it has no, no correlation to what we think about when we think about that particular word. 
okay? For instance, the word slave is in the neuter gender. Slaves were obviously not gender, not that way. The word church is feminine in nature, and that is really even more interesting when you think about the fact that the word church is a reference to the called-out assembly of the Greek towns. It was something that they, it was a word they used all the time in their government structure and the way they, they worked in their civil uh, situation. But it's, it's feminine, okay? So it's either masculine or it's feminine or it's neuter. So then any word that you use to describe that noun, whether it be the article, the, or any other adjective, is intended to match. So if it's a masculine word, it's going to have a masculine form of the article. Neuter word is going to have a neuter form of the article, et cetera, et cetera. So without getting, as in, I'm trying not to get bogged down here, but so the word for spirit is neuter, okay? But there are times in the New Testament where it violates grammar and associates that with a word that's in the masculine. So it is not proper from the way the, the writers of the scripture, it is not proper to ever refer to the Holy Spirit as it is always necessary to refer to the Holy Spirit as He. And I'm just telling you this because it's a very clear indication. We believe the Word of God is very carefully and precisely given to us, okay, and has been very carefully and precisely preserved for us. And so when we look at something that just is like... So, so when we, we can't see that in the English because the English just gives us the proper... Uh, use of the word pronoun. It uses, uses the word he instead of the new, something else. But for someone that was studying the matter of the Holy Spirit in the original language, when they would come upon something like this, as they would be reading through it, they'd be going like, wow, why did Paul say that? Was, you know, did, did Paul uh, have, make a grammatical error in this particular setting, or did he say exactly what he wanted to say? And we believe that he said exactly what he wanted to say. And so even though the word for spirit should have taken the neuter form of that adjective, it takes the masculine form of that adjective to make sure that we understand that the Holy Spirit is a person, not just an entity, not just an it. Okay? So saying that, when, and like I said, hopefully not getting so bogged down that you just went to sleep on me, uh, let's, let's just look at a couple places where this happens. I know you won't see it from your side of it, but if you just look there with me for a minute. So let's look at John chapter 15. So John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Now, he appears in the masculine. It is being properly translated in our English Bible by the word he. But if you had been writing Greek, you would say it. But because they, the author was very precisely did not use the word it, he used the word he. Okay? And then over in John 16, 13, and 14... Um, reading, beginning reading in verse uh, 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come again, it very specifically is the word for he, 
Um, the Spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And so in all those places, the language uses the word for he, the masculine word for he. So, so you can say, okay, what good does that do me? I don't know Greek. I'll never read Greek. I'm not going to understand Greek. Just, just understand that it's just another example of how precise our, our scripture is and how, how explicit it is in giving us exactly the right information at the right time. You don't have to remember anything about genders. You don't have to remember anything about agreement of gender number and case. You don't have to remember any of that. All you have to remember is just that the, the word of God is just so precise that it makes sure that we understand that the Holy Spirit is not an it. It's a he, that he's a person, okay? So those references are the fact that the Holy Spirit is person. He has the ability to think. He has the ability to have feelings. He makes decisions, pretty major decisions when you think about the fact that he's given every believer from the day of Pentecost till whenever the rapture occurs, he's given every believer exactly, the, precisely the gift that that believer needed to serve in the body of Christ. Okay? Uh, not a hard task for God, but an impossible task for you or for, for me. And so th those are things to indicate that he is a person. This little bit of grammar lesson um, uh, give you a little bit more. And by the way, if you want to take Greek, I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to set up a time to, to teach it to you. So uh, we can do that. No. So, so the Holy Spirit's God. Okay? The Holy Spirit's God. Uh, the very first reference to that is just the fact that how many times do we read the Holy Spirit? How many times do we read that reference that the, the word, the Spirit is qualified by the word holy? Uh, I didn't even write down, the, I didn't even bother giving you verses. It just, it just occurs enough times that that in, is very fact to me um, opens up that door of, of uh, exploration and to understand that he is in fact, that he is in fact God. Uh, he's linked with um, God the Father, in other words, the Spirit of God, Spirit of, of the Lord in some, in some sense. Um, we'll, we'll just come back to this in just a minute and look at some of the references, but he's also linked to the Son. Um, and there are, just for some sense of, and this is just really just a, the numbers don't mean anything except for the fact that there's numerous times that you can look this up and see this occurring. Um, Depending on who tells you, there are um, uh, in the 22 of the 39 Old Testament books, there's a reference to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, or some other reference in that way. Um, Isaiah is one of the more common ones, uh, and, and Ezekiel in a different <coughs> different set of set of ways. Um, but um, and for whatever reason, I thought I'd wrote written it down here. One of the sources I looked at said there was like 89 references in the Old Testament. Another one said like there's way, way over 100. Um, I honestly did not count them. So uh, there's a lot of references in the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit. Um, there's 261 times in the New Testament. So obviously the matter of the reference to the Holy, uh, Holy Spirit picks up significantly. It is also an indication of what we refer to as progressive revelation. The more you study the scripture, and you, have to, you need to study the Old Testament for background, but as you move into the New Testament, there is just a lot more information, a lot more specific information given to us about our daily lives and, and so forth uh, along the way. But it appears 261 times, 
And of those times, 113 of those times are references that Paul wrote. Just to, again, indicate the numbers of time that Paul did that. So, again, if you would help me with a few verses. Um, um, we already read Genesis 1-2, which the Spirit of God um, is referenced there. Uh, I need someone to read Matthew 3.16, please. Dottie? And Luke 4.18. Trying to find new hands. Uh, I don't want to overlook somebody that's trying. Amos? Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11, Mike? Uh, Judges 3.10, Brenda? And Isaiah 61.1, John? Okay, and we'll wrap up with the, the reading of these verses and come back to this next week. Uh, Matthew 3.16. Okay, and the Spirit of God, like a dove descending upon Christ at Christ's baptism. And of course, that, re that particular reference, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, will come up other times in our study of the Holy Spirit because it comes up in different ways and different contexts. And then uh, chapter, in Luke chapter 4. Okay. Again, we're looking at references where the Spirit is connected with, with the Father specifically in this particular reference. That is there a specific reference to the Holy Spirit and His ministry to Christ and His earthly ministry. First uh, Corinthians 6.11. Someone? Nobody? I didn't. Excuse me? Mike? Okay. Sorry, Mike. Okay, the spirit of our, of our God. Again, talking about the process of salvation, sanctification, all attributed to the spirit of God. Judges 3.10. Brenda? The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave to John of Shaphim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand was prevailed over Kishon of Shaphim. Okay, again, here's a demonstration of the physical power of the Holy Spirit, enabling them to have physical victory. But again, this purpose is just, again, another time that the word spirit is linked with the word God or with the word Father. And then finally, John, Isaiah 61.11. 61.1, excuse me. Okay, now hopefully you didn't go completely asleep and not underhear Amos' words in John's words because Amos is quoting, as he read from Luke, is quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. Okay, so next week, uh, you know, some of you may decide to try one of the other classes. That is what we are encouraging you to do if that's what God would direct you to do. Otherwise, uh, we'll be back, pick back up here. And uh, again, if you want to do something in the way of foundation or preparation, I would just con con 
encourage you to continue to read John 14 through 16. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the Spirit of God who lives within us, who fills us, who gives us the fruit of the Spirit, who most of all in our study today enables us to understand the Word of God. We Thank you for that ministry. We thank you for who He is and ask that we might appreciate more who He is as a person each day. In Jesus' name, amen.